So just feeling into the perception of it being the last evening of our retreat together. Hope that you are feeling some sense of satisfaction and recognition of the time well spent. And maybe it doesn't always feel like that when we're struggling. But uh, I feel profoundly confident that it's been time well spent. I'm very privileged to have had you create the opportunity for me to come and spend time like this. Because if none of you had signed up, we'd have cancelled it. (laughs) (laughs) So I I said that um, this evening I wanted to share a few reflections on the subject of karma. One of my imaginings that I sometimes do to myself is trying to imagine what it might have been like to live at the time of the Buddha. Because I'm wondering, you know, what was it really like for people doing that practice back in the day? Were the conditions, how much were the conditions like the conditions we deal with and how much were they different? And uh, certainly... Life would have been generally a lot shorter and more unpredictable in that sense. I mean, it's even if you you wander into the church next door and look at the gravestones, you know, it wakes us up to the fact that uh, lifespans were much more unpredictable than in this country until relatively recently. But certainly back in the India of 400, 500 BC, BCE. And so there'd have been a quite strong likelihood of dying in childhood. If you were a woman, if you didn't die in childhood, there'd have been quite a strong likelihood of dying in childbirth, like the Buddha's own mother. Any kind of illness could have picked you off. Things that are trivial today for us could have been fatal there's probably more likelihood that you'd die in some kind of violent conflict maybe if you were a man you know some form of fighting accidents of all sorts and then wild animals the suitors are full of people who die from snake bites or scorpion bites or being gored by wild elephants and so such like or the food might have run out, or you might have had food poisoning, which was the, the kind of the last straw for the Buddha himself. As today, that probably wouldn't have finished him off. So life was much harder in some ways, but at the same time, it was much, much simpler. So people would have had far less information to process about the world outside them and about the world inside them. And so I imagine, and this is just my imagining, that they'd have been less, less plagued than we are by that sense of choice and the sense of responsibility for what's happening even far away. You know, we can frame all sorts of um, 
statistics and ideas about our our responsibility. Like Gavin said to me yesterday that he read something that uh, the average American, three three Americans would be responsible for one for one person. Three people living an American lifestyle would be responsible for one death of another person by climate change. I might even have got, or by you know, environmental impact, and it might have. I might even have got that entirely the wrong way round. But you know, we can, we can, we have so much information about the repercussions of the choices and the actions we make over huge time and distance that couldn't possibly have been calculated back then. When I grew up. Um, we were still living maybe in an era where the kind of majority um, assumption was that progress was endlessly possible, that the world was becoming fairer, more and more people were having access to education, technology was finding fixes to things, and yes, there were sort of murmurings in the background about this is this really sustainable, but they hadn't become so... Um, insistent and so uh, mainstream as they are now, and so there was there was this sense of kind of assumption that things that had improved so much for my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation would keep on improving indefinitely. But today, it's become much more evident that. Many of the things that we've done to try to improve things in our world have actually made things worse. Yeah. And we have all this you know, knowledge about it, incomplete knowledge, but certainly an overwhelming amount of information. We also have much more information about how our choices and things actually affect our inner world, both psychologically and physically. So not only are we responsible for all that stuff out there, but we're also responsible for so much more in here. And so we're left with that sense of I should and I need to find the right thing to do to fix it all. And I think this is a dukkha, a suffering that's very particular to our time, as is the collective waking up from the illusion that... Humanity has all the answers to make everything endlessly better. And actually, we're waking up to the fact that things could get a lot, lot worse. So there's this kind of heavy, collective um, predicament of knowing that our way of life is unsustainable in the way that it is at the moment. And then what adds to the stress of that is the sense of denial around it, that we don't spend a lot of time talking about it. So I was listening to the news a week or two ago in the morning, and they were talking about the preliminary findings of the UN um, panel of scientists who are collating the report to present with the COP26 in Glasgow later in the, in the year. And... Uh, you know, they casually mentioned that some some uh, fairly mainstream scientist in this report saying there's already too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for humanity to have a manageable future. 
and then that that comment was just left hanging and they went on to talk about the Olympics and we're kind of left with what do we do with those thoughts, those pieces of information, that understanding and so it's not surprising that many of us feel a sense of overwhelm, a sense of despair and a sense of helplessness or disempowerment. And yet what we really need and yearn for and want as human beings is is to feel that we have some power, some agency, some relevance, whatever our stage and condition of life that we, we're relevant and our value, of value and that our life matters. So we're going to go on trying to find fixes for things and so we, so we will do, so we must do and we want to do, and we do but we don't know whether they're going to work. So I think this is a really, really hard time to be alive. It's a really hard time to be a young person it's a hard time to be a middle-aged person. It's a hard time to be an old person that the Buddha's contemporaries just couldn't possibly have imagined. Just as we can't really understand or know what, entirely what life was like for them. You know, they would never have imagined the level of physical comfort that we enjoy, but they would also not have dreamed probably of the widespread prevalence of mental distress that we also suffer in the midst of that but we all both then and now you know share the capacity for hope for fear Um, we all suffer losses we all want to be happy and to avoid suffering just as people have always done from the beginning of time and just as all living creatures want to do And we want the same for our loved ones, for those near and dear to us. So what the Buddha called the the worldly winds of praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, happiness and suffering, they're still blowing, just as the wind out there is blowing. And people also lived with a great sense of fragility and vulnerability and uncertainty about the future. It wasn't you know, so much a collective future that they had to feel uncertain about. And also, like us, they wanted to feel that they were making the most of their life, that they were living the best possible life that they could, living a meaningful and a purposeful life. And it was that question, you know, how can I live the most meaningful possible life, given that these conditions of uncertainty prevail around me. What is the right way to live that sent the Buddha out, out of his privileged background into um, his search? And fortunately for us, he found an answer. (laughs) So he said that there are certain things, he came to the conclusion that there are certain things that we can do nothing about. We are of the nature to sicken. We can't do anything about sickness. Yes, we can, you know, we can mitigate some, we can cure some, but the overall propensity of the body to sicken, 
the propensity of the body to get old. We haven't found a fix for that and I don't think nobody has predicted that we will or if we do, it's a kind of crazy dream. Also, we're of the nature to die. Nobody, so many cultures have sought the, the you know, quested immortality and we've never found that either. And also that all the things that we love and hold dear, sooner or later, either those things are going to come to an end, going to end their, end their um, being present in the way that they are, or they'll outlive us but we'll be separated from them. You know? So these are four of the five recollections that he said that all of us should think about when we think about ourselves. I'm of the nature to age, I haven't gone beyond ageing. I'm the, of the nature to sicken, I haven't gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die, I haven't gone beyond dying. And all that's mine, beloved and pleasing, will eventually become otherwise and become separated from me. But in the middle of all these conditions, he said it's possible to live a meaningful and happy life and to realise the very greatest state of happiness that's possible. So, question yesterday, what do we understand by enlightenment? Here's another way of framing it for you to consider. So that the unconditional and complete liberation from any sense of unsatisfactoriness or discontentment unconditional and complete liberation from any form of fear or anxiety of any kind. Wouldn't that be a prize worth having? (laughs) Whilst being fully awake and fully engaged in life. And this is actually the implication of the fifth of these five recollections, that the only thing that we do own the only thing that will follow us wherever we go is our karma. So we, although we can't change these laws of nature, one of the laws of nature that is gifted to us is our agency. In every moment, there's something that we can choose to do. In every moment, there's something we can choose to do. And this brings it with, us, with it both responsibility and opportunity. So the famous opening verses of the Dhammapada, one of the very, very earliest Buddhist texts, mind is the forerunner of all things. If you think and act with an impure mind, with an unskillful mind, suffering follows us like the wheels follow the hooves of the ox that draws the cart. If we think or act with a pure mind, with a beautiful mind, happiness follows like the shadow that never leaves us. And the wheels of the cart and the shadow are not at a distance from the ox hooves or the person casting the shadow. They're right up close. So I... I've often, I've 
predominantly, really, in the past, taken this teaching on karma to be quite a, and it is, a really stern warning to refrain from doing things that are going to cause harm, a kind of really reminder that harmful intentions, harmful actions have consequences, have create unhappiness for self and other. But it's also absolutely the opposite. It's equally true that whatever the situation or condition or time of our life or whatever the condition of the planet, in every moment there's an opportunity so I, I had this kind of an insight in this while Gavin was giving his beautiful talk last night and particularly that really moving story of the high school teacher which I'd heard before but forgotten about and it just made me cry. And recognising that in every moment there's an opportunity. So if you don't know um, the Benedictine monk David Steindl Rast... He's a a wonderful, wonderful monk in his late 90s who um, has had for decades a a website called Gratefulness, I think gratefulness.org, and there's a beautiful TED talk of his. It's about 15 minutes long where he talks about the opportunity that's presented to us in every moment. And he says that gratefulness is about recognising that life is gifted to us, that our moments are gifted to us. And it doesn't mean that every moment gives us something that we want, but every moment gives us an opportunity. And many moments, perhaps even the majority of our moments, give us the opportunity to enjoy something. And sometimes the moments give us an opportunity to respond. The territory of these Brahma Viharas that we've been talking about. So in every moment we're making karma of one kind or another. Karma um, literally means action, but the Buddha said that it's, it's actually the intention underlying the action that creates karma. So our actions are born out of intentions, and wholesome intentions intentions of non-greed, of kindness and of wisdom create wholesome actions with beneficial results. And unwholesome roots or underlying intentions of greed, of hatred or delusion create unwholesome karma. And this gives rise to the various forms of wholesome and unwholesome acts, or skillful and unskillful acts. And we, we acknowledged those right at the beginning of the retreat when we named the five precepts. So the, the list of um, unwholesome acts is to, to kill living beings, to take what's not given, to misuse our sexuality in ways that harms others. And then we also have acts of speech, So we can act through body, speech, or mind. So there's these activities of causing harm on a physical level with our physical bodies. And then there's speech, false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, gossip, 
gossip because it's often it, it often gossip is divisive and creates scatters more delusion and then mental um, unwholesome calm unwholesome action would be covetousness ill will and wrong view kind of reinforcing wrong view and then wholesome action is the opposite of those to refrain from those things and in doing so we generate as we also said on the opening evening we create the possibility of freedom from fear and freedom from oppression for living beings and the possibility to grow happiness and wisdom in the world. So in the long term, we can't see, we can't see all the knock-on effects of our actions. We can't see how all our our karmic acts will ripen and this, this can lead to some kind of doubt around the teaching of karma and scepticism around uh, the teaching of karma but we can notice a lot of the truth of this already in the here and now how when we do something good for someone it feels good generally or when we receive uh, something good done for us it feels good so you know what does it feel like when somebody does an act of kindness towards you. Maybe there's been some small thing that happened today, a smile you received from somebody, somebody stepping aside for you you to make your cup of tea or some acknowledgement, maybe a shared laugh or behind-the-scenes joke or different things that people have done for us, small and large, recently and further away. What does it feel like to be the recipient of that? when we're able to open the heart and receive it? And what does it feel like when you find yourself doing something kind for somebody else? What does it feel like when that's received and appreciated? You can also notice what it feels like when it's ignored or rejected. And that kind of shows us that actually being able to receive generosity or kindness from others is a kindness in its own turn. So we can notice that the effect of karma happening here and now um, for ourselves. We can notice even before we act. So what does it feel like if you're kind of thinking maybe, um, you know, you're you're angry with somebody about something and you're scheming for a way to get your own back. How does that feel? Or we're, we're thinking of a way to kind of fiddle our accounts and cheat the system. You know? Maybe we think that the system deserves to be cheated. You know? We want to claim more from our, our furlough or our self-employed income support thing than we're entitled to or whatever and we cheat but it, it doesn't feel comfortable does it maybe we might be planning I don't know a burglary or whatever I imagine that you guys aren't really sitting here on retreat planning burglaries but it's, it has it doesn't have a pacifying effect on the, on the soul or the psyche but if we might be planning some act of kindness or generosity we might be planning a celebration 
We might be planning to go and visit a friend who's in need. We might be looking forward to going home and you know, cooking a nice meal with our family or something. And how does that feel, the anticipation of doing something kind or generous? And then when we're in the process of doing it, if we are aware of that intention, it also feels good. Conversely, when we're in the, in the process of doing something we know is wrong, there's this feeling, isn't there, of kind of furtiveness and I'm, you know, fear of being caught. And actually, you know, we may feel a kind of sense of excitement and maybe I'm going to get away with it, but we generally it's not our happiest condition of mind. Maybe we can, sometimes we mistake excitement for happiness. But that's purely a lack of wisdom. And then after we act, you know, how do we feel about good things do we, we've done? This is a practice that we encourage you to do at the end of the day, is to reflect on the goodness of, of our practice. Or we're also encouraged to reflect on our, our um, commitment and our accomplishment of harm, harmlessness or to reflect on um, previous acts of generosity. And I'm sure you could all look back and find something that you've done in the recent or more distant past that actually you feel really happy about. You know? And when you bring it back to mind, the heart feels light, the heart feels joyful. And this is, this is known sometimes as the, the bliss of blamelessness recollecting one's own um, harmlessness in the past, the good things that one's done. And this actually um, puts the mind in a really good condition for meditation. So There's a kind of natural unfolding that the Buddha pointed out, that when the mind is happy, it calms more easily. And when the mind becomes calm, it tends to see things more clearly. And as it sees things more clearly, wisdom arises And when wisdom arises, we suddenly discover more freedom and there's this kind of snowballing effect. Whereas if we, you know, we do something unskillful, we sit with remorse. Remorse means literally something bites you again. That's the root meaning of the word remorse. It comes back to bite us. Or... You know, we're afraid that it's going to come back to invite us in the future. So we can, we can notice the effect of karma in this lifetime, both before we do things, when we do them, and after we've done them. And then we can also notice in, in our relationships, this is another area where we notice this cause and effect. If, if, if we've, you know, our relationships are going to be the product of the moments of interaction that we've had, the moments of intention. The small gestures and small words end up creating a whole um, climate of relationship. And then we can also notice the way that our intentional actions form habits. So there's the famous saying in the Buddhist teachings that whatever we frequently think and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So our thoughts give rise to intentions. 
And some of our actions are conscious and intentional. So we have a present intention and we choose to do something. Some of our actions are unconscious, but they're, and they're, but they're driven by habits that are the, the fruit of previous intentions. So there's, there's the saying, I don't know who first said it, it gets attributed to all different people, but you know that to be careful of your thoughts because thoughts become intentions. To be careful of your intentions because intentions become actions. To be careful of our actions because actions become habits. And habits shape our character and our character shapes the experience of our life. Maybe that's really what the Buddha is saying when he says that all beings are the owners of their karma, heir to their karma, born of their karma, related to their karma, and abide supported by their karma. Sometimes that that can feel a a little interesting thing to figure out, but maybe that's what it's really saying, or one way of understanding what it's saying. So I can notice certain habits in this mind stream that have been conditioned in. One of them was, and this is very common um, through our education system, the habit of competitiveness. You know, being ranked and judged for performance in certain specific, very limited kind of areas of skill and excellence. But we're so used to that that it really activates the comparing mind that I imagine didn't work in quite the same way at the time of the Buddha. It's so automatic to us to be kind of comparing, grading, ranking, competing with one another. And that doesn't make for a very happy or loving habit of mind. You know. And it, we can then become quite punitive with ourselves, quite judgmental and self-blaming. And then if we keep doing that unchecked, it becomes a habit to be self-critical, self-blaming. You can also develop the habit of indulging. This, oh, you know, this doesn't matter. I'll just do this this once. And then we just do it again and just again and just again. Or I'll just procrastinate that again and again and again. And we build a massive procrastination habit that then makes us feel weighed down and guilty and so forth. Or we can, we can develop habits of kindness, patience, generosity. So I'm always struck as somebody who's not had children by um, when I meet people who do have children, the, the amount of um, patience, generosity of spirit and self-sacrifice that is elicited from us through the um, task of being a parent. It's really beautiful to witness. And I know that we don't always, you know, circumstances are not always that we, we, nobody's a perfect parent, none of us had a perfect parent, but there are qualities that are elicited by situations in life that build really beautiful facets of a character. And if, like me, you haven't had to do that, you know, that you you haven't had them drawn out of you in that way. I'm very grateful for um, the chance to you know, 
serve sometimes as a Buddhist teacher because I think it um, switches on a, fra- a mind frame of kindness and care that um, is really beneficial for me. I think I get probably as much, if not more, benefit out of <laughs> being in this seat than you do for having me in this seat. You know, it's a real privilege to be asked to show up as best I can in my you know, most kind and considerate self. So with regard to our habit, our habits, and uh, it's really helpful to keep in mind, to keep in mind the, what are called the four right efforts, the four wise efforts in cultivating beneficial, beautiful states of mind. So these are the effort to, um, to guard beautiful states that are... Um, oh, no, to guard against... To, well, to guard against uh, unwholesome states that might be arising. So, you know, not to do things that trigger and elicit or dig in a state of ill will. And if one's ris- arisen to actually abandon it, to drop it. So to begin to, in this contemplation that we're doing, of my moment-to-moment watching the activity in heart of, heart, of heart and mind, to actually see some, start to see some of the ways that we might intervene in that causal loop of the escalation of mind states. So guarding against um, unwholesome states of mind and abandoning them when they've arisen and developing beautiful ones and learning to sustain them and um, water those seeds so that they continue to grow. So sometimes we make mistakes, of course, and we do things that are unskillful that we later regret. And sometimes that's out of ignorance, sometimes it's out of confusion, and sometimes it's just because we get we let ourselves get pulled by the force of habit. And then what can come up is lots of self-blame and self-aversion. But wisdom at that point would just acknowledge that we've done something that was unskillful and we regret it and we don't want to do it again. But we don't have to keep chewing over it. We, I think we have this kind of unconscious belief that if we just think about the past one more time, we could somehow make it different. And that's not the case, you know. So there's a the, the kind of archetypal or the example of this in the early Buddhist teachings is the figure of Angulimala, who was a, a mass murderer, who was... Um, about to claim the Buddha as his final victim and the Buddha intervened and he used his psychic powers so that Angulimala couldn't catch him and uh, and he had this conversation with Angulimala Angulimala became a monk and he became an enlightened monk but he still had to live with the consequences of his actions when he'd go on arms round and travel around people would throw stones at him and attack him and sometimes beat him up. But he still managed to live 
with a heart at peace. And the Buddha actually um, got him to, to help a woman who was in labour, who was having a difficult childbirth. There's, there's a protection chant um, that it's about from Angulimala, who said that ever since I became a monk, I've not knowingly harmed a single creature. And that statement of truth and fact about Angulimala, Angulimala's present karma, was powerful enough to create protection. So what's a wrong use of the teaching of karma is to use it as a kind of rear-view mirror. Because we often find ourselves asking the question, why has this happened to me? Why why has this happened to them? And when we do this, we're kind of looking for blame. We're looking for guilt. And these aren't wholesome states of mind. So when the Buddha was asked if if everything that a person experiences, all the pain that people experience is the result of their past actions, he said that this is wrong view. So pain is also caused by all sorts of other factors. So illness, diet, climate, accidents, assault. Or we might add all sorts of much more complex systemic versions of, of these same things. You know. So there are many, many laws of nature operating to create the conditions of our lives, and the law of karma is just one amongst these laws. So we can't explain everything that happens to us um, as the result of karma. And I think we, we, in some ways we want to, because we want to know that we're in control and responsible, because if we were we could fix things. We could fix all the things that we wanted to fix if we were in complete control. But we're not. And to um, assume that we are, to insist that we are, is really an act of, in some ways, hubris, of grandiosity. And it's also not kind to ourselves. So actually, the the reflection on karma is is also used in the cultivation of equanimity to recognise that um, this is the only place where we or other people can find happiness or freedom for themselves is through our own karma, through our way of showing up, their way of showing up in the present moment. We can't fix other people's karma for them. So there's something also in that that needs to respect the autonomy and the the particular journey of particular individuals, much as we might want to fix other people's happiness or suffering. Their happiness and suffering is ultimately in their hands. Of course we can make conditions for them that support as best as possible the minimization of minimizing of their suffering, but actually every individual is on their own kind of spiritual journey. Okay, not too too much more, but I just, it feels important to me to share this. So 
we can never we can never know what the outcomes of our actions are going to be. The best we can do is have an in, make an informed guess, and it's really important to make informed guesses because it's there's not much sense in claiming well you know. I had a really good intention when I did that, but it all went pear-shaped. If we've been negligent in actually um, thinking about the impact of what we intended to do. So in being indifferent to to the impact of our actions is not kind or benevolent. And then there are also there are there are good actions and intentions that are really attached to creating a wholesome result. So we have an investment in the outcome, and that's that's limiting because uh, you know we're dependent then for our happiness on the we're making the the, the de- our happiness dependent on the outcome of those actions. And also we can use that to inflate the sense of ourself. But that's not to say that, you know, things that we want to do to create a particular result can't create a happy result, but it's not going to lead to a complete peace of mind. So there's also really in this teaching an, um, an orientation to actions that, beautiful actions that are done for their own sake, simply for the sake of purifying and freeing the heart. And this is known as the karma that leads to the end of karma. So that doesn't mean just, 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 just looking after this heart here. So that, in a way, is too much inner focus, which gets really narcissistic. But we also know what it's like when all our focus is on kind of taking care of what's out there. We? Or we know people who are doing that. And what happens is either one's fixing everything or helping everyone out of there with a lack of self-awareness, or one gets completely overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. So actually, really, this, this caring for caring for the heart, caring for beings, actually requires a balance of inward and outward focus. Because we're not really separable from what's out there. So there's this beautiful African concept, Ubuntu, which um, is explained as the recognition that I am because we are. I am because we are. I'm only here as a teacher because you're there listening to me. We're only we're here dependent on one another, and our our well-being is intimately bound up with one another's well-being. So actually, whether our our benevolence, our kindness, and generosity is turned inwards or outwards, it's going to have a ripple effect in both directions. So we have this choice in every moment, this opportunity in every moment, either simply to feel appreciation and gratitude, you know, and what's the effect, the ripple effect of an appreciative and grateful heart? How much of the damage 
that we have done and are doing as human beings would be, uh, have been avoided if we had known how to be content with enough, if we weren't on this treadmill of needing more, needing more, needing more. So simply to be able to appreciate and enjoy this each moment of life. And then when what the moment brings us is something that's painful or challenging or difficult, to be able to respond to that with an open heart, with compassion, with kindness, with equanimity. Yeah. And this is really what the, the potential and the possibility of a human life is. We don't know whether we're going to manage to fix the problems that are out there. Which doesn't mean that this beautiful heart doesn't, isn't going to want to try. And it's natural, that the natural impulse of a heart that is kind, compassionate, appreciative, connective, is it's going to do everything it can to try. Joanna Macy, the Buddhist and um, deep ecology teacher, she said, we don't know whether we are here in the roles of midwives or hospice workers to the planet. But actually, if you think about the qualities that are needed for a midwife or a hospice worker, they're the same. And I'm not sure that one could say who is the happier being, who has the happier role, where there is more possibility for um, happiness and contentment in the heart of a hospice worker or a midwife. So, you know, maybe that doesn't give all the reassuring answers that we might want. But when I feel that sense of despair looming and, and that, um, that dissonance with what's going on and, and the sense of what, what can I possibly do to, to stay buoyant, to feel that life is meaningful, worth living and something beautiful and a way that I can contribute, actually to remember that every moment there's this opportunity this opportunity to create something beautiful, to enjoy, to offer an act of non-harm, of kindness, to create a better condition in a moment for another being or for more beings, or even just this being here, so that we're still engaged in every moment we can do something to increase the net amount of well-being to reduce the net amount of suffering in the world. And that, to me, is really a meaningful life. So let's just sit for a moment or two.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.